For those that are still here, I want to ask you to please open your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. As you're turning there, I want to take a moment just to give you an update on how Emma is doing. I continue to thank you for your prayers. Uh, She is getting over the pneumonia. She's been battling finished antibiotics, so Lord willing, all that's behind us. The encouraging thing that the therapists have noticed this past two weeks is the amount of movement that's occurring in her arms, hands, and fingers. Uh, So they're greatly encouraged. They have felt movement on all different planes, and so continue to be praying, not only for her, her arms and hands and for the trach, but for her complete healing. So please continue to lift that up to the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Would you bow with me as we pray? Gracious Lord, I thank you for the hope we have just read about. And Lord, this morning, we need to hear that. We need your hope, O God. As we face the different struggles in life, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that a better day is coming. Remind us, O God, this world right now is not the end of the story. That, Lord, for believers, we have a glorious eternity waiting us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, apply your word this morning as needed. Open our hearts to receive it. In the name of Jesus, amen. It's pretty clear in looking at me that I am not any sort of runner. Um, I was amazed last week as Michael showed the video of what he and Ian did in running a 5K, 10K, half marathon, and a full marathon. I I do good to run to the refrigerator uh, at times. My wife used to participate in long-distance running. Uh, She ran in a marathon and two half marathons. I know my son Samuel and I would always encourage her by shortly after the race, we would go get some coffee and a blueberry muffin and wait for her to finish. It was the least we could do to support her. I read recently a testimony of Pastor Brian Wilkerson. He is a runner, and he was reminiscing about his participation in the New York City Marathon. He said, the first half of the race is like a party. He said, you're swept along with 28,000 runners. Crowds line the street, people are in costumes, and people are cheering as you run and make your way down the different streets of the boroughs of New York. You feel like you could run forever, he says. Then at mile 13, you cross over into Manhattan, and you start heading north. Central Park, where the finish line is, is behind you. 
Do you realize you are running away from the finish? The crowds are thinner now. The party's over. At about mile 16 or 18, you hit the wall. Pastor Wilkerson says, you're absolutely miserable. Physically and psychologically, you're exhausted. And all you, you, you want is to stop running. He says he remembers passing one of the first aid stations. There were runners lying on cots. The runners were pale and gaunt with IVs dripping into their arms. And he thought to himself, those lucky dogs. He began to despair, he says. I imagined myself going home and telling everybody that I didn't finish. Why did I ever sign up for this race? What made me think I could do this? Then it hit me, he writes. One way or another, I had to get to Central Park. That's where my ride was. I had no car. I had no money. I'd have to get there on my own two feet. So I might as well keep running, putting one foot in front of the other. Don't think about the next six miles. Just think about the next step. Keep that up, one foot in front of the other. And then when you cross that finish line, it will feel like glory, even if you're in 10,044th place. There's much to be said about comparing the Christian life to a marathon. It's not a sprint. I think we know that. Deep down, we're aware that it can be a long journey calling for perseverance. And that's why this morning I want to remind us that there is a finish line. Over the past few Sundays, or really since the beginning of the year, I've been teaching about discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We've looked at how being a disciple means a follower, a learner. It means to, to follow him in humility, saying, Lord, change me. I've taught what it means to follow Jesus by carrying your cross, denying yourself. Over the past few Sundays, I've spoken of the challenges of being in the world, but not of it. Now, if the cross, the challenge, and the conflict was all that there was to Christianity, then the path would be drudgery indeed. That's why I'm so thankful that there is comfort and encouragement along the way. It's good to know that in this marathon there is joy and fellowship in the journey. And this morning, get in your mind that there is a finish line. The struggles of this world, the trials and tribulations that you and I face because we are followers of Christ are not forever. The story has a conclusion. The race has a finish line. A day when we will be done. Done with disease done with grief, and done with sin. The challenge is this, not to lose hope until that day. Our flesh fights against us to give up, and the evil one screams in our ear to quit. Losing hope is a very real temptation. The psalmist expressed that in the question that many believers ask, a question that is found in these four words. How Long, O oh Lord. It's expressed in the words of Jeremiah the prophet when he was being persecuted for preaching the word of the Lord that judgment was coming. And Jeremiah literally calls out to God and says these words, You have deceived me, O oh Lord. Talk about an honest prayer. 
Jeremiah said, Lord, you lied to me. It's this hard. Why? Habakkuk. Habakkuk was told that God was going to bring judgment upon Judah via the Babylonians. Babylonian, I'm sorry, Habakkuk complains to God, How long, O oh Lord, shall I cry for help? How many times have you, believer, gone back to those words? How long, O oh Lord? It's so easy to become disillusioned, disheartened. So keep in mind that we must remember that there is true and eternal satisfaction. So this morning, to those who are weary of waiting, there's a day coming when your perseverance will be rewarded. To those who are tired of grief, sorrow has been too long your companion. There's coming a day when joy will reign supreme. This day is described in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This day when the discord of conflict gives way to the harmony of hope and the pain of judgment becomes the pleasure of joy. Now, verses 1 through 4, or really verses 1 through 8, serve as a, a thesis statement. It gives the main idea of what's about to unfold in chapters 21 and 22. They serve as the conclusion of the revelation that was given to John on the Isle of Patmos. Now, in these verses that we read a few moments ago, we are introduced to the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Now, if you want to read on, and I encourage you to later, verses 9 through 21 give a much greater detailed description of the new Jerusalem. It says this is what it is like. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 describes the new creation. I love being reminded of that because sometimes we get this idea of, of heaven just as a city. But I would remind you that part of heaven, part of being in the presence of God, is not just there is a, a city, but that there is also creation. So if you enjoy the mountains, guess what? You're going to enjoy the most beautiful mountains you've ever seen in glory. You see, these chapters, chapters 21 and 22, are the conclusion. But the glorious thing is they're really a beginning, C.S. Lewis is best known for his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. The best known of those books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He carries this allegory about the Christian and how the lion Aslan represents Jesus. The very last book of that series is entitled The Last Battle. The book unfolds the story of how the forces of evil rise up to, to finally destroy Narnia, to destroy Aslan. And of course, they are not successful. C.S. Lewis ends that book with this paragraph. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were at the beginning of chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You see, the conclusion is just the beginning. This ushers us in to eternity, but this gives us a glimpse of what the finish line will be like. Now notice in verse 1, the finish line will be a time when God recreates creation. Verse 1 begins where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now that phrase is a way of saying, I saw a brand new creation. You may have heard somebody say before, I'm going to fight tooth and nail. Now, that statement, tooth and nail, is a way of saying I'm going to fight with everything that I've got. The totality of who I am from top to bottom. 
Well, new heaven and new earth is a way of saying that all of creation is going to be redeemed and recreated. All the way from the star at the furthest end of the universe to the very bottom of the Marianas Trench. All of creation, all of creation will be recreated and brought back. God will do a new work. Now, this begs the question, why? Why is this going to happen? Now, this is not the first time that we are, are told of this taking place. In fact, in 2 Peter 3.10, Peter wrote, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. That speaks of judgment. The earth is dissolved. Judgment has come. So why? Why does creation have to be judged and recreated? Well, this is the reason why. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the revealing of the sons of God is the finish line. When Jesus returns and all of God's children are, are redeemed completely and totally with brand new bodies. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Keep in mind that all of creation has been tainted, marred by sin. If you've ever enjoyed watching a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise... You've never seen one in its total beauty because that sunrise or sunset has been marred by sin. You've never seen a glorious view of the ocean because that view has been tainted by sin. So therefore, creation has to be recreated. I'll give a picture of this. This is a picture of the cathedral at Cologne, the Cologne Cathedral. At one point, it was the largest Gothic church in northern Europe. This church has survived being ransacked during the French Revolution. And during World War II, it was hit by 14 aerial bombs. You can see the devastation on the right where although the, the complete building wasn't torn down, it was certainly marred. It was certainly destroyed in portion. But what happened is rebuilding began. Even as early as 1944, people began mismatching bricks to rebuild it until finally in 2005, full reconstruction took place. And as you can see on the left, it was restored to its former beauty. That is a picture of what God is going to do with this broken world that has been destroyed by sin. He is going to rebuild it by taking what is ugly and making it beautiful. Taking what has been disfigured and mending it. God will restore and recreate creation in the way that he intended it for it to be that's a glorious promise that's why what is written next is very puzzling the sea was no more that's curious no more sea I can't speak for you but I enjoy the ocean enjoyed playing in it playing with my kids in the ocean so does this mean that if there's no more sea, that Satan could look at God and say, yes, yes, you got all the land. You got those who believed in you. But the sea belongs to me. You could not reclaim it, God. No. There is not one part of creation, one atom of creation that the devil will lay claim to. We have to understand that the book of Revelation was written to impact our hearts through our imagination. 
Throughout the book of Revelation, the sea became a picture of chaos, of turmoil. The sea has a very unpredictable and destructive nature about it. Those of us who have been to the ocean, how many times have you walked out of the ocean and turned around to be hit by a rogue wave? Sunglasses knocked everywhere. You come up shaking the sand out of places you never thought sand could reach. The sea is powerful, unpredictable, chaotic. In fact, earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, when the beast who rises to assault God and the church, when he arises, guess where he comes from? The sea. Chaos. Turmoil. Destruction. So what this is communicating to us in verse, verse 1 where it says the sea was no more, it is saying that in the new creation, chaos will be no more. The turmoil that has been brought about by sin will be gone. All of its evil and nefarious manifestations will be no more. God is going to recreate things. In fact, one of the descriptions around the throne of God is what? There is a crystal sea, smooth, no chaos. So yes, I believe that in glory we will be able to enjoy all creation with no rogue waves knocking us off our feet. But it gets even better. Notice in verse 2 we are introduced to the holy city. New Jerusalem. Now, once again, we have to ask a question. Why New Jerusalem? Why is the city of Jerusalem pointed out as being made brand new? Consider, if you will, how Jerusalem is portrayed in the book of Revelation. In chapter 11, Jerusalem is the place where the church is opposed and persecuted. In chapters 16 and 17, Jerusalem joins with Babylon in its idolatry. So what was recognized as a city of God on earth has now come to represent rebellion against God. But this new Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem is different. The new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God and his people. Now we're going to see, or actually you can see later as you read in chapter 21, the description of the new Jerusalem. You're going to notice something odd. If you were to sketch it out on a piece of graph paper, you would notice that based on the dimensions, the new Jerusalem comes down as a cube. That's curious, isn't it? What city is a perfect cube? Unless we remember, revelation is to strike at our heart through our imagination. There is one other building in the Bible that is a perfect cube. It is the Holy of Holies. This is a way of saying that God's very presence is coming down to be with his people. There is no more God up there and humanity down here. The two are now united fully. That's why the new Jerusalem is described as a bride coming down for relationship, for union. The two are united. There is a perfect relationship between God and his people because on that day when we cross the finish line, God will reside with the redeemed. That's the point of verses 2 through 4. The new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God. Meaning that if it is with man, then God is fully with man. The language here is beautiful because it's that of tabernacle. Notice in verse 3 it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That, that phrase dwelling place is the one word tabernacle. Now that's a phrase that is full of meaning in the scripture. 
in the wilderness when they built the tabernacle, it was to be constructed at the very center of the camp. As a reminder that God was dwelling in the very center of his people. The very word that is used for tabernacle, the root word, is the same word for Shekinah glory. The glory of God's luminous presence that often comes down so strongly his very people cannot stand in his presence. But the greatest use of the word tabernacle is in John chapter 1 where we are told this. That the word of God, Jesus, came down and what did he do? He tabernacled among his people. So that means that Jesus was just a foretaste, an appetizer of the greater tabernacle that is to come when we cross the finish line. Now, understand this. God dwells with his people now in the Holy Spirit. But because of the presence of sin and because of the frailty of our humanity, we do not experience the fullness of that presence like we can and will one day. That's one of the reasons we'll have new resurrected bodies. Think of it like this. I understand that there's going to be a football game played tonight. A little game in Los Angeles. Now, hundreds of millions, maybe even a billion people, I don't know, will tune in to watch this. Many will be tuning in on these screens that are are larger, I mean, seven, eight feet long, in high definition. Definition so high that you could literally see the different shades of green on a blade of AstroTurf. That resolute. Now, think about that high-resolution, large-screen TV and compare it to what we would have watched the Super Bowl on 40 years ago if we were able to get our rabbit ears turned in the right direction. Black and white with vertical lines being wavy. Where we are right now because of our sin is in the black and white phase. We see God, we experience, we walk with him. But on that day when Jesus comes and the new creation ushers in, we will go, my brothers and sisters, to high definition in the presence of God. And the glorious thing is, is the color will get brighter and brighter each and every moment of eternity. This is what the scripture has been pointing toward even from the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Leviticus, God said, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. What we read in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of this from Leviticus. This same promise in Leviticus is reiterated in Exodus, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Zechariah. It is the hope of the believer not just to escape this world, but to be fully and completely with God. That's our greatest longing. That's the beauty we long for. And the glories of his dwelling are described in verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. You've been hurt by this world so that tears are a constant companion. The day will come, that will be no more. Death will be no more. Funeral homes will become fun houses. How often have we stood by the bedside and watched one succumb to death? And we know we're with the Lord, but our hearts hurt until that day. Church death will be gone, destroyed. There will be no more mourning or crying, no more pain. The former things have been passed away. It is that hope that sustains us. 
You see, there are those who say, you shouldn't preach on heaven like this because it makes us so heavenly minded we're of no earthly good. To the contrary, it's thinking of these glories in heaven that often will give us the strength to continue to press on. In fact, in the scripture in 2 Peter, it says this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. In other words, this world we're in is going to be gone one day. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Because there's coming a better day, how should you live? That's the question. Let's encourage one another with these words. We need that. In high school, my senior year, I was fortunate to be a part of and to help with the Special Olympics. If you ever have the opportunity to do that, I encourage you to do so. My job that day was one thing, to stand at the end of the race lane, to look at the competitor and just to simply say, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you're doing great. And then when they got to the end, to be there to greet them with a hug and a congratulations or a high five. Church, we're in a race. Let's be of those that are saying, press on. You can do it. There's a better day coming. The trials of this world will not be forever. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. First and foremost, I want to ask, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. To know that the only way to experience the presence of God I described this morning is by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone. His grace saves us. And this morning, if you have questions about what that means, I want to invite you to come down the aisle and just meet me here at the front. Believer, you may be going through an especially difficult time right now. And you just need to pray. To be reminded that these trials, these struggles that seem so overwhelming, will not have the final word. God is at work. And if you need to come and pray, these kneeling benches are open. Father, I thank you that you are faithful and true. Remind us, Lord, there's a finish line ahead. We're not there yet. But, Lord, there is glory that awaits. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.